Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. Would you join me again? Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We are going to begin this chapter. Uh, To be honest with you, I don't know if we'll be in here this particular chapter two weeks or three. We're going to try to preach on the first 12 verses. Um, When you read, hear the text and see it, you'll know there's no way that we can uh, cover all of this today. So, I assume we'll move toward the latter part of the chapter next week, but we'll also come back and get some more out of the first 12 verses next week. Um, Good thing about preaching through a book of the Bible is you don't skip anything, you don't get to do hobby horses, uh, you don't get to avoid difficult areas. Uh, Today, I realize is a text that is going to call for something that most in here have done. Uh, But I hope that because of that, you'll not say, hey, I've done that, I'm good, and check out. Hopefully, you will continue to do what this calls for and learn it on a deeper level for yourself to share with others. But also know that uh, some here this morning have not fulfilled what this passage is calling for. And so uh, I'm very thankful for this particular passage. Uh, It's a very important one. And so to that end, we don't do this each week. Uh, But before we even read the text, would you join me in prayer this morning and just ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, we confess that of ourselves, we're going to miss it today. We're going to be thinking about everything but what you have to say to us. and We're going to read some words and see a screen or some ink on a page, Lord, and it'll go right over our head or we're going to learn some facts and hear a little story and We're not going to be impacted by this, but Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a supernatural work in our midst that only he can do. Uh, We need that gift from you today uh, that this passage calls for. It is a gift from you, and so Lord, I pray that you would provide it. Lord, those of us that have taken the step called for in this text, uh, God, I pray that we would be filled with gratitude that you have given us that gift and changed our life. Lord, let our lives reflect that this morning. We ask you, God, just to use this passage. Let your word have freedom. Speak life into us today. It's up to you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Verse number one. Verse number one, I'll read it and then make the brief introductory comment. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea in those days. Uh, Right off the bat, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you were here last week, then you know that we've, in previous weeks, we've gone through a genealogy, Jesus' pre-birth, we've gone through his virgin birth, we've gone through some wise men who came to worship him, and then they were warned in a dream, don't go tell King Herod where you found the baby, they went back home another way. Joseph... The adoptive father of Jesus is warned in a dream, get Jesus and Mary out of Bethlehem because Herod the king is going to try to kill him, which we saw last week, that's exactly what Herod did. And so they, he was warned, go down to Egypt. They stay there apparently for some months. And then they're told, come back to Israel. Presumably, they're going to settle back in Bethlehem, but there's a warning, don't stay in Bethlehem. And so they move up to Galilee, specifically to a little town that's not even mentioned in the Old Testament, Nazareth. 
And we finished chapter 2 with this, this idea that he was reared there and he would be called a Nazarene. And then we come to chapter number 3, verse number 1, in those days. So did you catch what just happened? I don't know why. But God in his sovereignty made a decision that in the Bible, other than one little account of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, we're going to have nothing of him from age 2 to age 30. Just one little scene. So we, what we did in Matthew's gospel here, we just in one verse jumped ahead 28 years. Boom, 28 years. And in those days, in what days? In the days that he's being reared in Nazareth and he's going to be called a Nazarene. In those days, here comes John the Baptist. Verse 2. He's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What's he preaching? Repent. Why? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, so that's John's message. And then Matthew, who's writing this gospel, inserts again some information about John. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says of John, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, so Matthew says, here comes John preaching. John was written by Isaiah six, seven hundred years previously when Isaiah wrote the following, quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Matthew says John is the one Isaiah wrote of. John is the voice. It's the main thing. Who's this guy? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. What's he crying out in the wilderness? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Hey, the king's coming. They've got some crooked roads. We need these things straightened out. We've got some low spots need filled in. We've got some high spots. They need brought down, fill in these low spots. Get ready for the king. Is everybody ready for the king? The kingdom of heaven's near. Matthew says John was already predicted that was going to happen. Now he continues his commentary, verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Sounds like Elijah. Old Testament Elijah. John's a lot like him. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Not bottled honey. Locust. you got to go get it. Camel's hair, leather belt. Kind of get that picture in your mind. Here he comes preaching in the wilderness. He's like a voice telling people to get ready. The kingdom of heaven is here. King's here. He's eating locusts. Is that even clean? Yes. That was announced in the Old Testament as clean for Jews to eat. Like literally the locusts. Large grasshoppers. They can eat those. Throw a little chocolate on them. They're really tasty. In their case, maybe some wild honey. They don't think they had chocolate back then. Verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea. So Jerusalem is a city. Judea is the region. And all the region about the Jordan. So wow, just this whole area. In fact, Josephus the historian gives us this impression that John, the Baptist ministry, you would almost think the way Josephus wrote of that time period, John's ministry was larger than Jesus. More impactful, you would think, the way he wrote. So we're not talking about a little thing here. We're talking about a big movement, large movement. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Let that picture sink in. They're being baptized by John. He has this announcement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. People are going out. They're being baptized as they're confessing their sins. This is a real revival. 
But when he saw, he, John, saw many of the Pharisees, that's the conservative religious element, and the Sadducees, that's the liberal religious element. These are the two, two of the three dominant groups that were in that time along with the Essenes, which are not mentioned in the New Testament. But here's John doing this ministry, having this revival, and he looks and he's starting noticing these numbers of Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, man, fellas, it's good to have you. Glad you finally made it out. Now we can really start having a successful ministry. No, not John. He sees them coming, and here's what he says. You brood of vipers. You offspring of snakes. I almost picture, any more to be baptized? Who's, who's this coming? You guys. You brood of vipers. You poisonous snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you? Why are you guys out here? And some have even looked at it this way. Do you think you're going to escape the wrath to come? He continues speaking to them and all around. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit. Grace view, hear the message today. We're already getting into it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, don't you dare for a moment think this. We have Abraham as our father. We're good. We're covered. We've got Abraham. You better not be thinking that. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And then he's going to use a symbolic picture. And then he's going to get theological. And then he's going to use another symbolic picture. Here it comes, the next three verses. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even now, it's already starting, the axe. You say, well, when you lay the axe to the root, you're not pruning. Oh no, there's no pruning going on here. You're tearing it up. You're destroying this. Why? Even now, the root, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Trees represent people. Every tree, people, therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is John the Baptist, none greater, born among men, born among women than this man. This is the greatest of the prophets and he's preaching very clearly. The axe is being laid to the root of individuals who do not bear good fruit and they will be thrown into the fire. You mark it down. Verse 11. I baptize, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Why'd you do that? For I was thirsty. Why'd you go over there and get that? For I was hungry. I baptize, baptize you with water because of repentance. For repentance. But he who is coming, notice at this phase, he's, he's saying he's coming. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His, here comes a second imagery, picture. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, you say, is he talking literal here? No, he's talking about people. John, the prophet of God, verse 12, speaking of this one that's to come, 
His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat, that's a certain type of person, into the barn. But the chaff, that's another kind of person, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So between verse 23 of chapter 2 and verse 1 of chapter 3, there's a 28-year gap of time. But I want you to think, and I know most of you know this, between the book of Malachi just a few pages back and the book of Matthew, there is actually a 400-year gap of time. This is important because we call these 400 years the 400 silent years. What I want you to notice for a moment is John's method of preaching. Verse number 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in Judea. He came preaching. So I want us to think for a moment about John's ministry of preaching. What's the method of his ministry? John, how do you do ministry? He says, I preach. He has these messages. He has these calls that he gives out. Think with me again, Malachi and Matthew. So there's a 400-year gap of time. If you would think of it this way, watch. God speaks to Abraham 2,000 years before this. Speaks to Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob. They move down into Egypt. They're in slavery for 400 years. So God is speaking to the patriarchs. And then here comes Moses and they come out of Egypt. And eventually they lead into the promised land. And that starts a a good string of some 20 or so prophets. And God is speaking to the nation of Israel. Moses receives the Ten Commandments, but the prophets are speaking to them, and each one of them has an element that this, hear this, same message, different forms, different specific things. Watch, a Messiah is coming, a King is coming, a Christ is coming, a very important person is coming. It's like he just keeps sending these prophets. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and then... No prophets, no message... My pastor used to refer to this as like a dramatic pause before the big event. And then at the end of the 400 silent years where God is not speaking to the nation of Israel through a prophet, here comes a prophet, John the Baptist. In your mind, I want you to think of John as the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament prophet. You say, it can't be both. John bridges Old Testament and New Testament because here he comes saying, there's one that's coming. He's coming. There's one after me. And then he turns right around and says, he is here. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In fact, he will point that out before chapter number three is even finished, that he's here. He's here. He's coming. He's here. What's John's method? Preaching. Go with me if you would. Hold your spot here. I want you to flip over if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's see just for a moment what God says about this method of ministry that John uses. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. will not be on the screen, but if you have your Bible, I'm going to actually back up and read verse number 17. Because Corinthians are Christians in churches around the real city of Corinth in ancient Greece. And they had a lot of division, a lot of infighting. And Paul looks at it and says, you know what? I'm glad I didn't baptize certain people because they would be saying, well, I've been baptized by Paul and you haven't. He's like, I'm glad I didn't really do that. He says for verse 17, again, not on the screen, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And not with, here's, here's, here's what Paul is telling himself as he's coming into Corinth, not with words of eloquent wisdom. That's not what preaching is about. 
lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's like, my goal when I came to Corinth was not to sound really, really wise. Now here's the text you'll see on the screen. For the word of the cross, the word of the cross, we're talking about the cross of Christ, Paul acknowledges the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Literally, here's what he's saying. Some people hear this message of Jesus dying on a cross and that's how you go to heaven. Guys, there's some people who hear that and honestly, they may be sitting here right now and say, that is the silliest, stupidest thing. If that's how God has chosen to save people, that is just dumb. That is foolish. Others, maybe not quite as a charge against God, they think of it this way. I don't see how in the world a person dying on a cross helps me. Some would take it even further and say, I don't see how someone dying on a cross 2,000 years ago helps me in 2019. Well, here's the reason. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The reason you think it's folly, foolishness, is because you are dying and going to hell. But to us, there's this other group of people, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's the power of God? The word of the cross. For it is written... Isaiah again. We quote Isaiah a lot in the New Testament. Paul's quoting him this time. As though God is speaking. Here's what God says. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Listen to me. I don't know if someone's watching online right now or hearing this later or you're sitting here live. But if you're going through live thinking, I'm going to weigh it out. I'm going to discern all the religions and then I'm going to make up my mind what to do, what to believe. If you fall, not because I'm saying it, if you fall outside the guidelines of today's message, you will die and go to hell. That is a fact. Paul says, as though Christ, in the book of Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. You don't sit back and and, and evaluate what God says. What you do is you just obey what God says. Verse 20, where where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, the lawyer, the really smart person? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21 is a key verse. Look at it. For since in the wisdom of God, this is God's decision. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So God, in his wisdom, made a rule. People will not come to salvation and go to heaven by wisdom. In God's wisdom, he made a rule. You don't get to heaven by wisdom. Verse 21 again. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. It's not just preachers getting up and acting foolish. That's not what he's talking about. It's the folly of what we preach. That's what God has determined that he would save those who believe. And he draws two distinctions. For Jews demand signs. We want a sign. You've got to prove it to us. Show us. Can it meet a list? Really impress us with fulfillment and signs and wows and wonder, wonders to us. Verse number 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. I want you to impress my intellect. But we, Paul says, preach Christ crucified. That's the message. Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews go, no, the Christ, the Messiah, does not die. He comes and rules and reigns. So this is real stumbling block for them. They have a hard time getting over that. And he says, it is folly to the Gentiles. That's just foolish. That's a crazy way to save the world. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, so some Jews, some Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What is Paul saying? 
It's by the foolishness of our message and the method is of preaching. If you don't write this down, note this this morning. God in His wisdom has chosen preaching as a primary means of implanting His truth into sinners and calling us to faith in Christ. God has chosen preaching to do that. It's what John the Baptist does. That's the method of ministry he does. It's what Paul does. I believe Paul and John the Baptist's style would have been different. I believe Jesus' style would have been different from his cousin John Baptist. But they all are preaching. So let me hit this for a second. Preaching, teaching, same thing, right? Preaching and teaching are different. I have been teaching. I haven't done any preaching this morning. All I've done so far is sharing information, hopefully correctly explaining what the Scriptures say and hopefully what they mean. Just teaching. You say then, teaching, preaching, what's the difference? The difference is preaching preaches for a verdict. Preaching calls for action. Preaching wants you to reach a conclusion. And once you've seen that, this is the conclusion based off of this teaching here. Good preaching always begins with good teaching because we need to know why we need to take the action. Again, preaching calls for a verdict. That's the difference. We can teach and teach and teach, and that's a wonderful ministry, but preaching says, what are you going to do with this? Guys, I can't explain it. I'm telling you, it is not about the preacher ever, but there is something uniquely powerful in a person being called and indwelt by the Spirit and filled by the Spirit who literally just takes God's simple commands, God's simple imperatives, and just in a simple way says, here they are, here's what they mean, do it. There's just something about that. It is so simple. It isn't wise and impressive. And I get it. There's a lot of people in Anderson County who, are, who can give wonderful speeches and know a lot more facts about many more things, but there is something that changes people's lives about preaching. 1979. I went to a Bible camp. I was nine years old. I remember at the Bible camp, we ate a lot of food, played a lot of games. We had teams. I remember being introduced to shuffleboard and tetherball. And boy, if you don't hit that tetherball just right, you're going to get rope burned around your wrist. I'm nine years old. We played a little bit outdoor basketball. Didn't really know what in the world I was doing. Hadn't ever been introduced to any kind of organized basketball. But these things were all happening. But here's the key. I remember in the morning... My Uncle Lewis had a man that he brought in. He, my Uncle Lewis's church was putting on this Bible camp in Ben Lippin. I looked last night, I got my phone, I was trying to go back and look at pictures. Couldn't really find the spot of the buildings where, we, where I would have heard these things. But a man named E.W. Blow taught us in the morning. I remember he would we'd, we'd go in. E.W. Blow, a man from Montgomery, Alabama, would teach us. I think he was teaching on prayer. But guys, it was at night when a man named Ed Yeoman was preaching. E.W. Blow was teaching, and God was using that, but particularly it was in Ed Yeoman's preaching that broke my heart. Just crushed me. And that Wednesday night when my granddad preached, I received the Lord as my Savior, and I was called to faith. So here's our first point. John's method is preaching. So if preaching calls for a verdict, we've got to ask ourselves, what is the verdict that John is calling for? Would you look back again at verse number 2? The Bible says, He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Here's his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Would you notice John's message of repentance? This will be the crux of today's message. This will be the main thing of today's message. Some of you have been in church all your life, and you remember hearing lots of sermons on repentance 
Some of you can remember a preacher when you were young, and it was though when he stood on the edge of the platform, uh, though you may have been near the back, and he pointed his finger. I've heard some say it seemed like his finger reached all the way to the back row. And when he would preach on repentance, here's what many heard. Change your behavior. You better change your life. If you, better, you better repent, and you better change your life and turn from your sins. Jeff, is that what repentance is about? Now today I'm going to implore you, I'm going to beg you, hear the whole message, hear the whole message, because I want to point out that that changing your behavior and turning from your sin in and of itself is not exactly the repentance. That's not the whole story of repentance. The word repentance actually comes from the word metanoeo. Metanoeo. Now I'm not up here in a, for a moment trying to Act like I know anything about Greek or Hebrew, because I do not. Then, Jeff, why are you doing this word? You don't usually throw these words out to, you, out to us. I want you to hear this word, metanoeo, metanoeo. You've heard the meta before, metamorphosis. It's a caterpillar who goes through metamorphosis and becomes a butterfly. He goes through a basic, core, fundamental change, transformation, from its early stage to its adult life form, it goes through a metamorphosis. It is change. Metanoeo. Metanoeo. What is this? Meta change. But the latter part of that word does not mean behavior. It is not change of behavior, and that is repentance. This is important. This actually comes from a blend of a word that with its two parts, yes, it means change, but it means change of the mind. You've got to get that this morning. It is key. Repentance is to change the mind. John Piper adds the following. He says, We may infer that the basic meaning of repentance is, so hear this, to experience a change. What does this mean? Jeff, tell us what this means. Piper says, Repent, to repent, is to experience a change of the mind's thoughts, perceptions, dispositions, and purposes. You're like, man, that, that sounds like core, unquote. The latter part was not part of his quote. Here it is again. To repent is to experience a change of the minds. He breaks it down. Thoughts, perceptions, dispositions, and purposes. All four come into play when a person truly has had a change of the mind. Now, guys, let's, let me be clear. If you've been taught that that color is black, God is not calling you to change your mind and say, well, I've uh, taught all my life that, that was black. I need to change. No, you've been taught all your life that 10 plus 10 is 20. That's, a, that's still a fact. You don't have to change your mind about that. Then what do we have to change about? What is this? What the Bible is calling us, what John is calling, what Matthew is by writing this, calling us today, be sure, have you had a core change of mind that affects your thoughts, perceptions, dispositions, Purposes. Thoughts. Watch. Hit it brief. Watch. Stop thinking the way you always have. If you've never had a time where you stop thinking the way you always had before, you're not on your way to heaven. Perceptions. When you repent, here's what happens. What you've perceived as true is not. Disposition. I think of disposition, I think of a dog. Kind of saw evidence of that this week with someone in our church. You ever seen a big dog that's just a big pushover? Just a big wimp? 
You ever seen a little dog that thinks they're a big dog? Right? That's their disposition. You know, it can get them in trouble sometimes. Unfortunately, that happened um, this week. Pray for the little dog. He survived. Had to have surgery. Think of a horse. I don't know the last time you guys went horseback riding. Some of you, it's been a long time. We went down to the Dillard House down in Georgia, and I think that's the last time I rode a horse. We went on a little trail ride, and I know if I were to ride a horse now, what my choice would be, you got like 15 horses to pick from. Yo, what's that one over there that's got a lot of gray and got the big hump in the back of the... Oh, yeah, that's old Bessie. Yeah. Bessie looks really docile. Yeah, you got to, if you want her to walk, you got to kind of kick her two or three times. Yeah, that's the one I want. That's me right there. Others of you are like, I'm not paying $40 to ride that. If I'm going to ride a horse, I want something that's got a little spirit to it. Give me that one over there that's kind of jumping around. Okay, you sure? That's the one I want. Okay, that, they have two dis- different dispositions, two different attitudes, two different outlooks, two different stances. Listen, when you repent, what the Bible is saying is your thoughts will change, what you've perceived will change, your whole disposition Toward things will change, and ultimately your very purposes will change. Repentance will affect your volition, your will. It'll even happen like this. What you have thought was important all your life until that time, you may realize that's not important. And what you have thought was trivial and less and not that important, you may find out this is the most important When you repent, you say, Jeff, so is it a total overhaul of everything we've ever learned? No, when you repent, I'm going to invite you to focus with me. We're going to go through these over and over, three areas. I think Vance Havner wrote it, but more than him have come up with this. You'll see these thoughts literally in verses 6, 9, and 11. You'll see it in verse number 17 of next week. What is it exactly that our thoughts are to change? Our thoughts, perceptions, our very disposition, our very purposes, what is it that changes? To repent, hear this, to repent means afterthought. I'm going to hit this today. Repent, afterthought, second thought. Why? Because your first thought was the wrong thought. I had a wrong thought, thought that way all that time. I have to give an afterthought. I have, to give a, I have to take another thought. Why? Those were the wrong thoughts. And then you get over here and you repent. And you have new thoughts, new perceptions, new disposition, new purposes. About what, Jeff? Three things. You must repent about your sin, about yourself, and about the Savior. That is Repentance. Repentance is to change your thinking on a core level, your thoughts, perceptions, disposition, your very purposes about sin, about yourself, and about the Savior. What is it? I'm going to give it to you in a capsule form, and then I want to hit it a little broader. You ready? Everybody here, listen to this. Repentance is when you think of your sin, you honestly realize, my sin is worse than I think it is, My sin is so bad that it has left me deserving of God's judgment and I live and I'm brought into this world and I live under condemnation of eternal punishment. You're like, that sounds crazy. There's no way. I haven't done that many bad things. Then you have not repented. You better repent. You better change your way of thinking about your sin. Secondly is this. Yourself. You must repent. Of myself, I can never be good enough. I can never stop doing wrong and start doing right enough to stop this punishment that I've deserved. I can never be good enough. You have to, I can't do anything. You have to reach that point before you can be saved. 
And then the third thing is, my sin is bad. It is worse than I thought. It has left me in condemnation. I can never undo the punishment that I have coming, but Jesus absolutely can undo the punishment that I have earned. He can. You must have a core belief. Let's look at those briefly. Sin. Hey, can we just be honest? Let me be honest with you. I wish this were not true. Of myself, I like sin. This is me. This is me born in this world. I like sin. I love sin. It tempts me. It tempts me because it's attractive to me. It's attractive. But when someone repents, Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, I want you to check yourself. When someone repents, there's new thoughts, new perceptions, new disposition, new purposes. And it goes something like this. Though as a Christian... The old me, that old nature, is dead. I can't explain all of that, but Romans, Ephesians tells us. The old nature, when you become a Christian, is dead, but it's not yet buried. And if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. It's dead, but it's not yet buried. And so it keeps calling you to try to wallow in this old sin. Remember how good it looks and how attractive it is? Remember how tempting it is? Remember you like it, you love it. You say, well, some of those things are just horrible. Well, you have your things that you do like. And though you're dead to it, it still is not yet buried in this life. And so it calls you, come wallow in me. But a Christian who's repented has a whole new perception, thought, disposition, and purpose towards sin. Here's what they do now. They see it as grossly offensive against God. They're not just sorry for the consequences that come from their sin. Sorry that I'm going to have to stop my sin. No, a Christian, a true Christian, has repented in their whole attitude toward it. It is grossly offensive to God. After all that God has done to me, I sin against Him. Have you ever hit that point? Has there ever been a day in your life where you're like, to the core, deep, yes, it's still tempting. I think of the Ten Commandments. And there's some in this room, before you, be you became a Christian, before you got saved, you took the Lord's name in vain on a regular basis. But something happened. After you became a Christian, your whole stance towards sin, and you learned that taking God's name in vain is very offensive to Him, and He does not hold them guiltless, and when a word would slip, taking the Lord's name in vain, something started spiting your heart. You didn't like that. Why? I want to be clean from sin. I want to be pure toward the Lord. I want to please the Lord. Maybe it was being disobedient to the parent. Or maybe it was not getting the rest that God has called us to get. And we just work, 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 work all the time. Having no faith that God's going to meet our needs if we only work six days and not the full seven days. And just workaholic all the time. And all of a sudden you learn that that is sin. And God calls you out of that. And you're tempted to go back there, but then you say, that's just sinful, and God hates that. That's offensive to the Lord. And so you repent. And adultery is sin, and lying is sin, and though that may have been your temptation. Stealing. Coveting. Murder. Hatred. I thought... I'm not going to have you turn there, but I'm going to turn there just for a second. I thought about Galatians 5. Have you heard these recently? Galatians 5, 4, but if, let me find it. Verse number 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Here's sin. What is your heart? I want, Christian, I want you to check your heart toward these things. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, 
Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Oh yeah, it's cute, it's funny. No, it's not. Something in you is like, no, that's wrong, that's displeasing to God. We're not to have any other gods. We have this idolatry, that's called sin, this sorcery, these things of, of Satan and involved in the worship of him and meddling with things of demonic forces and powers and all of that. No, that's not cute. We get away from those things. He says enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. That's the flesh, that's sin. We're being called from that. I think of Ephesians chapter... Four. Go, can't go over them all. I can't read this whole text. Put away falsehood. Speak the truth. Be angry, but don't sin. So there's a righteous anger, but there's an unrighteous anger. Don't steal any longer. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Only such as good to build people up. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander. Boy, we're really good at running people down. It's sin. When you repent of sin, you have a new attitude. It's not cute. It's my little, yeah, it's my little thing. No. God convicts me of that. That is wrong. Slander. Malice. Be kind to one another. So not being kind is sinful. Be tenderhearted. Not being tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. Not, be, not forgiving one another. These are sin. I look down at chapter 5, verse number 3. Sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. These aren't cute little funny things. When you really repent, the core says, I am still drawn to that. It's dead, but not yet buried. And it calls me over there, but I have a new attitude. Man, I want to be clean from those things. Would you write this down? J.C. Ryle writes the following. He says, Repentance is no light matter. It's a thorough change of heart about sin. A change showing itself in godly sorrow for sin. Godly sorrow. Again, not the consequences, the offense that's made against God. Watch. How does it show itself? Ryle says, In heartfelt confession. Not just, yeah, I've done that. Heartfelt confession of sin. In, and here's the one that's controversial. Here's what he writes. It comes out in a complete breaking off from sinful habits. And an abiding, an abiding hatred of all sin. Not in your quote, but he finishes by saying, Such repentance is the inseparable companion of saving faith. Hear that list again. You say, yeah, I repented of my sin. Hang on. Repentance is no light matter. Yeah, I did that one time. It's a thorough change of heart about sin. A change showing itself in godly sorrow for sin. I've offended God. Lord, I've done this against you. In heartfelt confession of sin. In a complete breaking off from sinful habits. What that, that, that doesn't mean you never commit sin again. It means you just can't have it as a habit of your life. An ongoing unbroken pattern of sin. If you've repented, you don't have an unbroken pattern of sin anymore. We all still commit acts of sin, but we don't wallow in it, though it causes us to wallow in it. It's an abiding hatred of all sin. Does that describe you this morning? You either go back to a time in your mind and say, well, I repented when I was X amount of years old. Does that describe you? Number two, self. Would you go back to Matthew chapter 3? Would you look at verse number 6? Look at verse number 6. Verse number 7, 
He says, but when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to, the, to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 9 is key. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Guys, John the Baptist, his particular audience, when it came to repentance, he's not just saying, repent of your sin. What he's saying is, you better repent, have a new way of thinking. You better have an afterthought, take a second thought, because your first thought's been the wrong one. To John's audience, what he's saying is, you had better stop thinking that because you're Jewish, you're on your way to heaven. Being Jewish is not going to get you to heaven. Guys, this is key. In their day, this was a really, really hard thing for them to get over. This, was, this caused a real mental battle. Why? Because they were taught from the time they were little kids. You get circumcised and you do all the Jewish things. And, and because you're Abraham's children, you're going to go to heaven. You're automatically the children of God. And what John is trying to show them, you do not qualify as the eternal children of God just because you're the physical descendants of Abraham. Again, this was a real struggle for them. Why? Watch. They were taught that their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham had all these merits built up and he had enough to cover all the Jews that would ever live. In fact, they were taught in, by the rabbis that Abraham sat near the gates of hell. Not at them, but near the gates of hell. And if a Jew was headed that way, he would stop it and make sure that they were not allowed to go into hell. We're covered. We're fine. And here comes John and says, you had better change the way you think. If you think you're going to heaven because you're Jewish... What he wants them to understand, this is the theme of the Bible with the Jews. Yes, God made promises to Abraham, but those promises were entailed, implied, even demanded individual faith toward God. They required an individual assessment and agreement with God's appraisal of their sin. In other words, I've said this over and over. God does not have grandchildren through Abraham. Abraham's God's child and all the Jews are his grandchildren. No, he doesn't. Each individual, if you were to line up the millions and millions and millions of Jews, each one of them that goes to heaven, each one has their own relationship with the Lord. The same kind that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had. You have to have that. Now guys, here's a quick point. I'm going to move on. Question. If the Jews who have verses, verses that you can almost understand how they were confusing to them, but they have twisted and the New Testament has made clear that's not what that verse means. But in their defense, they have some verses that you can almost think makes them lead to that way of thinking. If they have verses and John's saying, you better stop thinking that way, where does that leave us? You have no passage of Scripture that you can look at and say, well, I am an American. Or I am in the such and such family, or I do this job, or I've done these religious things, it does not exist. If they're not covered, how much less footing do we have to stand before God? I want to invite you right now. What is your core view of yourself? Is there anything in your... Any, check yourself right now. Is there anything in you that thinks of yourself, you're going to be sufficient to go to heaven? If that's your thought, you had better repent. And then the Savior. What is repentance? i say it again. To have an overhaul where God overhauls our thoughts, our perceptions, our dispositions, our purposes toward our sin. Way worse than I thought. I deserve judgment. Toward ourselves. Man, if the Jews weren't good enough, then I'm surely not going to be good by myself. And the Savior. What is your core thought of the Savior? I thought about a few types of people that may be sitting here this morning. By the way, somebody may be sitting right now thinking, honestly? 
Like answer out loud? I don't even know that Jesus is real. They honestly think it's, it's a myth. I, I, I just, I've kind of weighed it out and I've read some things and I think it's something that was just fabricated by some people. And they wrote this book and they try to make it look like some fulfilled prophecies and people need something to lean on and so they kind of created this fictional character and Jesus is, if you think that, you had better repent. Maybe someone's here, oh, I, I believe in Jesus. I know there's too many facts out there and, that prove him, and I believe what the Bible says, and he's a very famous person. Or some of you may think, yes, he's more than famous. He's a great healer, or he's a great teacher. Jeff, I know what's coming in chapter 5, 6, and 7. No one's ever taught like that before. He's a great teacher. That, those are all true. But if that's as far as you go, you had better take another look. Better have another thought, an afterthought, a second thought. You better have a repentant attitude toward Christ. Hear me, listen. John the Baptist and Matthew, as he's writing John's message, is calling us to a verdict. What is the verdict? That Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God, the only Son of God by nature, and the only sufficient Savior of all the world. Would you hold your spot here? Go to Acts chapter 4. So here, check yourself. Have you ever repented? Have you ever reached this conclusion that the Bible gives us in Acts 4? Peter's preaching. As you're turning, Acts chapter 4, here's what's happening. Peter has healed a lame man. Peter and John, Jesus has resurrected. He's gone to heaven. The disciples are heading into the temple one day, and a lame man, 40-some years old, maybe my age, maybe a little younger than me, never walked a day in his life, and Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The man rises up and walks. Everybody starts gathering around Peter. Peter uses the occasion to start preaching about Jesus. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and Sadducees get really upset because there they go again preaching about Jesus, and they arrest Peter and John, and they bring them to the Sanhedrin, which is probably about as many people as these two sections together, in a large half-circle, and there stands Peter in the midst of them, and their question is, how do you raise somebody like that? Verse number 10. Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. By this man, Jesus, you just admitted, we've crucified him, right? But he's raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. What is he saying? Jesus is a healer. Verse 11. He tells the Sanhedrin again, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. You leaders of Jerusalem, you leaders of Israel, it's as though you are evaluating the true and the false religious people, and the very cornerstone was put before you, and you rejected him. You're like, well, you have no room for him anywhere in the building. And Peter says, the one you rejected is actually the most important one. He's the Messiah, but verse 12 is key. Have you ever reached this point in your mind? Verse 12, the Bible says, and, so he's healer, he's Messiah, and there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is none other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Have you ever reached this conclusion, this verdict that John is calling us to, that Jesus is the only Savior of the world? Guys, have you ever been there? Sin. I'm guilty. I'm condemned. I've earned judgment. Of myself, I can never get out from under judgment. But Christ is the one and the only one by whom the world can be saved. Now, very quickly. You may be sitting here this morning saying, Jeff, I get it. 
This is calling for a change of mind about our sin and ourself and the Savior. I get it. Here's my problem. By the way, there's probably someone sitting here, and this is you. I can't just force myself to change my mind. I can't just make myself think a different way. These are my thoughts. This is how I think. I can't just make myself stop thinking the way I think to the core. I I wish I could be like you guys. You guys seem to believe so easily. You just have easy faith. I wish I could have easy faith. I'm just really, really struggling. Here's my question. What if something was said or something done that changed your mind? What if? Probably about 15 years ago, there was a local church very close to here. We're having their homecoming. Y'all know what homecomings are? Remember those? It's where you kind of have a date, and that's your anniversary date for your church, and they would do dinner and all of that. So this particular church's homecoming was around late September, early October. But this particular year, it was really, really warm, really, really warm. And that, so that coupled with the service went long, okay? So they have a gymnasium, and the people are down there, like when we do meals, Some people were out early and they're setting the food out, getting ready for the people that are going to come. But the gymnasium is really hot. And the service goes really long. So much so that finally by the time the people get down to that gymnasium and start eating, then those who are coming at the end of the line, it was a big line, those that are coming at the end of the line start hearing these rumors that some people are sick. So here's what happens. Some people who love potato salad, they love potato salad, they're down there probably thinking, going to get some chicken, going to get some ham, definitely going to get some macaroni, getting that and that and that, and getting some potato salad because they love potato salad. By the time they get up there, word starts spreading that people are getting sick. They walked in the gym fine, they ate fine, and literally some people are starting to throw up. And it's more than one. And they finally have tracked it down. It's the potato salad. Apparently it's been left out too long or a bad batch was brought. And the potato salad is making people sick. You say, what happened? People repented. (laughs) People repented. You say, what do you mean? Those who planned on putting potato salad on the plate didn't put potato salad on the plate. Love it. They love it. But they're not getting any. Those who had potato salad on the plate are now scraping it off in the tray. I'm imagining some had it in their mouth. Yeah, people getting sick. Yeah, what are they getting sick on? Potato salad. (laughs) What? The what? Potato. Whoa. That's repentance. Repentance is, I love it, but you just did something that's changed. Ooh, ooh. And you go in the bathroom to kind of watch, and somebody's hurling over there in the stall. That'll change the way you think about potato salad in a heartbeat. That's repentance. Jeff, I just, I just can't make myself think a different way. Hear this. This is key. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance are not two coins. Faith and repentance are not two ways to heaven. One author worded it this way. If you tell someone, leave London and go to Los Angeles, you're not giving them two commands. Why? You cannot leave, cannot get to Los Angeles without leaving London first, if you're in London. So it sounds like two commands. What John and what the New Testament is calling us to is have faith in God and repent. Here's what it means. If you believe God, you will repent. I'll say it this way. If you have not repented up until now, it is because you do not believe God. Oh, no, no, I do believe God. No, you don't. If you have yet to confess 
and repent and have a whole different attitude toward your sin, yourself, and, and the Savior, it's because you don't believe God. The moment you believe God, you will repent. This internal thing will happen. Go if you would. That was Acts. Go back if you would. Luke 13. Flip over to Luke 13. We'll hit it very briefly. Just going to touch on it. Because faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. When we believe God, we will repent. If you don't repent, it's because you didn't believe God. Luke 13, look at verse number 1. Luke 13, verse 1. So Jesus is teaching and preaching. Watch verse 1. There were some present at that time, at that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus, have you heard? Heard what? There's some Galileans. They were down offering sacrifices at the temple. And Governor Pilate, that Roman governor, killed them in the temple, shed their blood while they're doing their sacrifices. Did you hear about it? Jesus, in verse 2, answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Hey, check your heart. Did you hear about them? They died. They got killed. So what is your heart? Do you think they were worse sinners than those that are in Galilee? Do you think those Galileans were worse than the other Galileans? Be honest. Verse 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus initiates this conversation. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell. Did you hear about that? So there's a tower in part of Jerusalem and the old part of Jerusalem, and a tower fell. Don't know the details, but a tower fell, and I don't know if these people were in it or under it or a combination of both. He says, or those on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, those 18, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Listen, catch this. So what he's saying is, here's what Christ is saying. Have you ever done this? You see a catastrophe happen to someone, and you thought, I wonder what they did to deserve that. Well, they probably had it coming. Here's what Jesus says. If you don't change your way of thinking, then you will perish. Jeff, do you believe there are degrees of sin? Maybe they were. I do believe in degrees of sin. Maybe not as much the activity itself, but the intentionality. Intentional sin is worse than ignorant sin. Both are sin. So perhaps there are degrees of sin, but I know this, there are no degrees of lostness. There are no degrees of lostness. I think of people, and I'm going to sound really morbid and really narrow, but I think I have a Bible reason. We'll get to it when we get to Matthew a little bit later. Chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jeff, do you think most people in the world are going to heaven? I absolutely do not think most people. Then where do you think they will go? Guys, I say this sadly. Most people are on their way to hell. Why? There are some who've never heard about God's holiness, God's justice. They've never heard it. God's love through Christ and God's grace through Christ. They've never heard that. There's some. But most people in the world are on their way to hell simply because they have refused to repent. Anderson County has many, many people. Jeff, how many think? I don't know. I say most people in Anderson County have refused to repent. Refused to change their mind. Why? Because they've been exposed to the Word of God. They've heard enough. 
but they just reject it. Nope, don't believe it. I don't believe it about my sin. I don't believe it about myself, and I don't believe it about the Savior, and they're living in unrepentance. Go to Matthew chapter 3 again. Let's come down the home stretch to our third point. John's call for fruit. John's call for fruit. So verse number 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Let me say a couple things about this group in verse 7. Being curious enough to go out and see what John's baptism is about and hear John's message does not equal agreement with John's message. Any more than you being here today means that you agree with this message. Did you catch that? He wants them to be really clear. What are you guys doing here? Do you think by coming here, just coming out and watching, that you're going to go to heaven? Do you really think just by attending? That's what John's saying to this group. And I think he's also implying to another group, again, Jeff, do you think these Pharisees and Sadducees are being baptized? I think most of them are not being baptized, but apparently some of them were being baptized because he wants them to know this. And you know what you guys are like, Pharisees and Sadducees? You're like a farmer who set his field on fire at the end of, this, of, of the crop season, and he's just doing this to burn, and he's going to churn it in. And when he's burning the, the low-hanging shrubs and the low grass, all of a sudden these snakes just start finding their way out because the fire is driving them out. He says, if you've come out here thinking watching this or even getting in the Jordan River with me is, is equal to repentance, you're fooling yourself because God will see your hypocrisy because it's not in your life. Because when repentance is real, it'll be evident in your life. Catch that. When repentance is real, it becomes visual. You can see it in the actions. It comes out in fruit in the life. I'm not going into this a lot. I like a ball team that has this color blue, okay? They're out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Okay, I pulled for that group. The day I stop pulling for them and start pulling for one of those dark blue teams out of Lexington or Durham, that will be a huge shift. If I were to repent of North Carolina and I am now for Duke or for Kentucky, I'll be the first to know it. And you will know it. How would you know? My closet will change. I'll stop wearing those things and I'll start wearing these things. Not all Clemson fans... Wear Clemson apparel, but most Clemson fans wear Clemson apparel and talk about the Tigers. Why? Because it's in them. It's real. It works its way out. Go, if you would, one more passage. Luke 3. Now, by the way, I'm going to tell you what you're about to read here. This is Luke covering the same material, so we're not going to reread all of it. Luke just gives a little more than Matthew chose to record. Okay? So every now and then, so here's John the Baptist has said, don't fake it, you better have real repentance. By the way, God can tell if it's real. Just getting wet in the Jordan River does not make you a true Christian, a true believer. Doesn't mean you've really repented. But if you have really repented, it'll come out in the life. So watch verse number 10. This is exact follow-up. You can look, those of you who have your Bible open, you can look at the verses right above it. You're like, oh, that looks just like Matthew. Right. But here's what he includes. 
Three or four verses that Matthew does not. Verse 10. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? He's just said, Bear fruits of repentance. What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics, two base garments, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. You know what he's saying? Hey, we need to bear fruit. What would it look like? How would it manifest in our life? John says, very simple. You have two tunics and you know somebody doesn't have one and you keep two and you don't give them one, you didn't really repent. You know you have more food than you need and you know people don't have enough food, then you didn't really repent. Verse 11. I'm sorry, verse number 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Tax collectors, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. Guys, can I just, very simple, here's what he's saying. You guys, you will know if you've repented because you'll stop hoarding and start sharing more. You tax collectors, here's how we'll know if you've repented. You'll stop collecting more than you're supposed to collect. What he's saying is, all the other tax collectors do that. You've been doing it. You need to change your activity. Stop living like everyone else. Stop sinning. And oh, by the way, start serving God. That's repentance. Are you soldiers, you want to know what it would look like in your life? You'll stop threatening people. Hey, give me, I need some insurance. I'm insuring you. What do you mean you're insuring me? We're insuring you. I didn't ask for insurance. You want insurance? If you don't have insurance, I think your things are going to get stolen tonight. I don't think our thing is never... Oh, they're going to get stolen tonight unless you pay us some money. And false accusations. Okay, we'll pay you. And stop complaining about your wages. Why? Because that's what all the soldiers would do. A very important quote I'm about to share. Very important. Piper writes of this idea where John says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Please hear this. He says, repentance is not the new deeds, but the inward change that bears the fruit of new deeds. I want to say it again. Repentance is not the new deeds, but the inward change that bears the fruit of new deeds. We could say it this way. Repentance is not the fruit of new deeds. Repentance is the inward change that is the root of the new deeds. Jeff, are you calling us this morning? To change our lives and to live differently? I am not merely calling you to live differently externally. I'm not merely calling you to righteous acts and stop sinning. What I'm saying is, check your heart. Be sure, did you really, really, really repent? If you really repented, then your life will change and you'll stop sin and you'll start doing things for the Lord. But if you look at your life and like, I don't know that anything's major changed in my life, then you've not repented. I always use this. This always comes to my mind. We have a swimming pool in our neighborhood. And this will happen again this summer. It happens about every year. There's always some little kids. And they want to go in the deep end. But the water's deep. And it's scary. And you see it every year. Some dad is standing in water, just like I did with my kids, standing in water up this high. Come on, jump in. And they're asking the child, you believe daddy will catch you? And they're asking these questions. And the little kids always say the same thing. I did it when I was a kid. Yeah. You believe daddy will catch you? Yeah. You believe daddy can keep you up? Yes. And when they get, then jump, and they get to the edge, and the head is slightly over the water. They're usually back about this far, and the head's slightly over the water, and everybody said, go ahead, jump on in, daddy will get you. 
Nothing's going to happen. I promise. And their little hearts just going, and they're scared. And they're, okay, they're hearing, Daddy, and they're saying, "Yes, I believe you. Yes, I believe you. Of course." But their legs are locking up. It's the only problem. Their legs are locking up, and they usually walk. Ah, and if anybody, if you dare come up behind them, and uh, uh, they're going to run away. Don't you push. You say, well, they believe daddy will catch them. No, they don't. They're lying. They're lying. I'm telling you. you, Honey, dad looks capable and dad's calling. Get that. He's capable and calling. And I want to do that. That looks fun. I think I'm the oldest one at the pool. It's not in the deep end. It's embarrassing. I really want to. Again, dad's capable, dad's calling. And they're saying, yes, I believe you can. But they are lying. They do not believe dad. They don't. You say, how do you know? You will know when they believe dad. Standing over the edge and locking up, they're lying. But the moment they jump in, that's the evidence. They really do believe dad now. They really believe he'll catch them. You say, well, then jumping is the repentance. <laughs> Listen, jumping is not the repentance. The repentance is invisible inside. It's that change of mind. Off they go. Now, dads, be careful. If you've got one of those that believes everything, you say, hey, honey, jump in. You believe dad will get you? Okay, yeah. And you're looking this way. I didn't think you would come in. Well, you said you were going to catch me. I believe you. That's good. They really do believe you. They think the world of you. Most of us are like the other one. God is calling out, I'll save you. I'll save you through my son. But to do it, you have to repent. Your sin is worse than you think it is. It is worthy of judgment. You can never stop the judgment by yourself. But I have sent my son into the world, and he is capable, and I am calling. Now, guys, here's the thing. You will never see salvation happen physically. But when it happens, it sets up these dominoes that begin to occur. And those dominoes start happening in such a way that eventually we will see that you have repented. Why is this so important? Because of verse 12 where I close. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, John said. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Again, he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. I'm going to beg that you'll really listen. Everybody in here tonight, this morning, everybody, focus. In their day, they would like mark off about 30, 40 feet in a circle. They'd put rocks up, and they'd put their wheat in there, And they'd get an ox or a couple ox and they would get a board or a log and they would ride it around in there and let it trample all over the wheat. And then the farmer would get his fork, his threshing fork, and then he would eventually take it and throw it up into the air. And what is he doing? R.C. Sproul writes the following. Here's why this whole message is urgent. Here's what Sproul writes. He says, The winnowing fork was, quote, used to separate the good wheat from the chaff. With the fork, farmers tossed the wheat into the air. The chaff was so light that even the slightest current of wind would carry it away. But the good wheat would fall to the floor. This is the metaphor John is using here. Do you see the crisis, he writes. Sproul continues. This is key. The visible church 
The visible church is always made up of both wheat and chaff. Jeff, what does that mean? Do you really agree with this? Oh, I know it's true. What does that line mean? The visible church, church is always made up of both wheat and chaff. Here's what it means. This is an analogy in verse number 12. He's talking about people and he's talking about an event that's coming. And even now, Jesus is ready for this event. The wheat, hear me, are true believers, true Christians. The chaff are false believers, not true Christians. Hear what he says. The visible church is always made up of both wheat and chaff. So Jeff, what's the visible church? I really want you to do this. I really mean it. Look around this auditorium. Look at people. Look at, look at the ones right near you. Look. Look around. Look at the ones near you. Look at the ones a little bit away from you. Look at the ones way on the other side. Look at them. This is the visible church. This is the visible church. Sproul says the visible church is always made up of both wheat and chaff. True and false believers. They're both here today. He continues, at the last day, Jesus will separate true church members from false. He will gather his wheat into his father's house. And the rest will be burned with unquenchable fire, unquote. Preacher, what, 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 did you, what did you just say? What we're saying is in this room right now, the visible church here at Graceview this morning, there are believers and there are unbelievers. There are those who are on their way to heaven and there are those who are on their way to hell. Now, I realize by me saying that, because that's a fact. If that doesn't happen, then verse number 12 needs to be taken out of the Bible. Might as well throw the whole Bible away if verse number 12 does not happen. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gather his weed into the barn. That's an idea of those that are going to heaven. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I realize by saying that that somebody, even if it's just one person, hears that and you're worried. Like, Jeff, are you saying there's unsaved and saved here this morning? What if, can't we all just be saved? Guys, there's unsaved here this morning. Who is it, Jeff? I don't know. It's not physical. Only God knows. But make no doubt about it. The day will come. He will separate the true from the fake and the pretend. He's going to do this. And if you're sitting there right now worried that you may be in the chaff group, I would be greatly concerned. You say, why? Because apparently your faith is not solid that Jesus has saved you. So I ask these questions as I close. Have you repented? Let's go through it. Here's the close. Check yourself. Have you truly, honestly, genuinely confessed your sins to God? Have you genuinely realized you are not sufficient to go to heaven? Does anything, well, there was that time I got baptized. Stop thinking that way. That's something you did. Don't do that. You say, are you against baptism? No, we're for it. But don't connect that to these questions. Have you ever just genuinely of yourself realized, I can never go to heaven. My sin is really horrible. And God, I've offended you. Have you ever confessed your sins to God? God, I've sinned against you. I've paid a lot of price for it, but I've sinned against you. It was you I've offended. Have you ever genuinely realized you are not sufficient? And then here's the key. Have you ever had a deep core change of mind about Jesus? He is 
able. I am convinced. I know it. Have you ever done that? If you have, I believe something so momentous as an overhaul of our thoughts, perceptions, dispositions, and purposes will show up in the life. So my last question here is, does your life bear the evidence, the fruit? I'm not saying the action is the repentance, but does your life bear the evidence? You say, so I'm supposed to be sinless? Oh no, you'll not be sinless. But you have an attitude towards sin when you realize it. I don't like it. God, I'm sorry that I did that. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. Let's not just pray and leave right now. Let's do this. Let's do this. Boy, if even one person had this thought, I've never confessed my sins to God. I've never really had that conversation. Or maybe someone like, I I never really thought genuinely, deeply that I am not sufficient to save myself. Or maybe you're here and you say, I've never had a overhaul, a change of my heart about Jesus. I've never really seen him as the only way to heaven. Then I would invite you this morning, guys, right now, right now, right where you're at, have a conversation with God. Keep it simple, very simple. Maybe just say something like this, God, I'm a sinner. God, I've sinned against you. God, I've offended you. Right now, do that. If you've never done this, God, I've offended you with my sin. I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. Go ahead and tell him right now, God, I I cannot save myself. I am learning that. I have learned that. Lord, I cannot save myself. I'm not good enough. I can't undo all the bad I've done. I can't even stop sinning. I am not good enough. But here's the key. I invite you right now to God. God, I've sinned. Lord, I'm not good enough. But God, I really do believe John 3.16 that you love the world so much that you gave him that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God, my mind at this moment is changing toward Christ. I know, I know, God, he can save me and will save me. Based off of that one verse alone, God, I am asking Jesus to save me from my sins and I believe you're doing it right now. Repent toward Christ. Christian just before I pray you're a Christian anybody here you got a sin God's revealed it maybe years ago you didn't know that it was that bad but it's becoming pretty clear is it time to repent and hate it forsake it I dare say there's probably a Christian here this morning that as they look at themselves very arrogant, filled with pride. Take another look. Take another look of yourself. You're nothing. There's another Christian here this morning, and God says if you are a Christian, because you're a Christian, you are His child, a saint in Christ, and yet you believe the lie that you can't defeat that one sin in your life. You're believing a lie right now this morning. You need to repent. You need to talk to God. God, I have had wrong thinking about myself. You say I have an identity in Christ and that's where the power comes from. Lord, today I am seeing myself victorious. I am right now in my mind, me and you, I am claiming victory through Christ. 
I also wonder, is there another Christian in the house this morning? You have a total wrong view of God, of Christ. He's become very common. Just another person. Somebody, maybe you're bitter at God right now. You are mad at God. You better repent. Change your thoughts about the Savior. Somebody in here, you recently read something. I, I read a passage this week. I struggled with it, but I settled with it. I didn't like it. Certain chapter in Exodus, man, I didn't like it. But I believe it. I wasn't crazy about what it said about God. And somebody here this morning, you're like, I am denying a truth about God, though I know the Bible says it, but I'm still toiling. It doesn't make sense, and so I'm choosing not to believe what the Bible is so clear about. You need to repent, Christian. Father, I pray for us this morning. God, thank you for these folks' attention. Lord, I don't know what you're doing. But God, I pray that you'll just speak to us and through us. And Lord, if anyone has yet to repent of their sins and of their self and of Jesus being the only Savior, Lord, if I can help them, would you let them have the courage? Would you prompt them? Would you call them to seek me out today? We ask in Christ's name.